Good afternoon, and welcome to another uh, podcast of Security Confidential. Today, we are honored to have James Azar, who is a successful entrepreneur. He's also a nationally recognized speaker and thought leader in the fields of cybersecurity, blockchain, Internet of Things, and fintech. James is a co-founder and host of CyberHub USA, which operates CyberHub Summit and CyberHub Academy, where Azar serves as its chief marketing officer. He also serves as the president of BHNV Ventures, which he oversees a private fund that invests in early stage innovative companies in cybersecurity, blockchain, and fintech. James, welcome to Dark Rhino Security Confidential. It's Thank a you. That's a very ask. old bio, Kevin. That's a, a very old, old bio. <laughs> I'm old. I am. You, you I'm know, so old. <laughs> hey, you know what? This is the beauty of editing. If you got a newer one, send yeah, it. We're, we're what is we doing? That <laughs> That's why I'm never allowed on these things. That's why the CEO is never allowed. I'm like, wow, that's like a 2017 bio. It's all good. That's probably the last time I did some. So, James, I, I really am uh, relegated uh, as the CEO to very seldom participate in these things. One, Manoj tells me that there's not enough light that they can uh, put on my face to get rid of all the imperfections and that are in there. And I say, Manoj, it's nothing more than experience that shows in this face. So <laughs> there's a, you really can't hide all that. Um, the second thing is, James, uh, really, uh, I loved your bio is on LinkedIn, where that you uh, enjoy several coffees a day, as well as a very good bourbon. So in your honor, uh, well, I, I decided to have a 15-year-old uh, bourbon in your, in your favor. So well, James, welcome to our show. <laughs> thank you for having me. Well, well let's just get the... <laughs> Let's get the most important question out of the way then. James, what's your favorite bourbon? So, what do you like to drink? Or scotch? So, or, you know, or, or Japanese whiskey? <laughs> or Japanese so whiskey. I can't pronounce my favorite Japanese whiskey, and I can't insult the great people of Japan by trying to say it. Um, I have never okay. gotten it right. I will tell you, um, um, I'm a Macallan guy. I'm like a Macallan 15, Macallan 18. Yeah. Um, I don't know. you know, And that's been recent. That wasn't the case before. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it changes. I think, you know, I had a four roses little issue, like little yep. thing. And, 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 you know, like as any scotch lover, like you've got your go-to stuff, but yep. then, you know, your, your, your drink of choice is, is, is seasonal. Mm -hmm. It's true. And I, t yeah. you know, or mood yeah. wise. Yeah. It, yeah. it depends on your mood. Sometimes you want something rough that burns coming down. And in cyber, we have a lot of those days where you want we something did. that burns when it comes down. And then you have another one and just to kill the pain from the first one. First one, yeah. And then you need another one to kill the pain from the first two. And then another one to make all the pain go away so you can actually go to sleep. So to our audience, if you haven't decided, we're talking about bourbon right now. We <laughs> <laughs> changed. Right. So from a security perspective, we used to think our address, our building, our floor, our departments and our divisions, those were our networks and those were our endpoints. COVID upended that. Right. COVID really did change that. One of the very interesting aspects to me 
was in the immediate aftermath of COVID, if we look back a year ago, right? So a year ago, this time we were all at RSA. It was unbelievable, yep. right? So we were all sanitizing our hands, but we were still hugging and seeing each other and hanging right. out and eating together. And, you know, people were a bit worried, but not, not so much. I mean, I remember at the time, one of the people I flew with was wearing a mask the entire flight. I was like, what are you doing, weirdo? Yeah, Take that doing? off. Yeah. This isn't a big deal, man. Why are you wearing a mask? Um, but 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 he did. But that's, I think that's one of the things that really changed is the endpoint discussion and then the uh, BYOD conversation. So we think of BYOD, we think of someone bringing their own phone to use work email yep. or a, a CRM tool like Salesforce or HubSpot within you know the environment. Well, now we've introduced two new things in our environments that we have no control over. One, most people that had to stay home rarely got a chance to take home work equipment. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't. I know a lot of companies. We we, we were always um, virtual, meaning we have a workforce that's spread across the entire world. So, right. you know, everyone's always had. You know, we've we had a process for you know mailing people work devices and and getting them secure and sending them how to set up their home networks. And we had a help desk role to help people kind of, you know, in specific roles, not every role, but specific roles really divvy up their home networks so that we have a little bit more uh, defense in depth in, in that kind of area, a little bit better cyber hygiene. But in this, <laughs> you know, um, but think of all the people that went home mm -hmm. and had to use yep. their home computer that didn't have antivirus that didn't have a VPN, uh, that had to log in and do work. As a percentage, mm -hmm. do you think that's a significant, the VPN part, I would agree with antivirus, I would hope most people had. Most people, you, you'd be surprised how many homes and how many computers don't have antivirus. Heck, man, your ISP gives it away for free anymore. Some ISPs do, others don't. Most people don't know about it because the ISP doesn't advertise it. Okay. Was it like I? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, here. So, so there were some statistics that were put out. I think it was, um, um, I, for, I think it was Sophos or someone that brought it out that said that on the BY, um, BYOD devices that were home in the initial stages of the pandemic, seventy percent of them didn't have any EDR or AV on them. These were personal devices, not company devices. Mm -hmm. Personal devices. Yeah. See, we think like cyber people. So we go, all of my devices have, have, you know, EDR and VPNs and they use all these different things. Right. But that's not the case for your marketing person in a company or your HR. Their home devices, they don't use that oh, stuff. I would agree with that. Yeah, they don't use... they. VPN definitely. If go I were ahead, to re-ask no, re that same question, how has COVID changed you know from your perspective as the global ca cio or ciso of a large organization so take the end user out uh, of it i mean which is a huge component but when you you think about some of the challenges that you face on your level and that your your other regional cisos and directors of infrastructure and director of securities face what are some of those challenges uh that existed now that exists now that didn't exist prior to COVID. 
So when you look at a hybrid infrastructure and architecture, the challenge of having someone go into an office building wasn't a challenge until COVID happened. So a lot of landlords in a lot of office buildings shut down the building and wouldn't let anyone come in or out. Right. Yep. Right. And so if you've got to go in and do maintenance on one of your servers, you're screwed. Yeah. You're screwed. And it took a lot of phone calls and a lot of conversation and setting a process for someone to walk in to hit a reset, which then brought up the conversation from the executive leadership of, well, how do we make sure that if this goes on for longer than you know 15 days or a month or two, that we don't have to go through with this every time? And you know that brought up the cloud migration and cloud conversation because now you're looking at on-prem solutions and you're going, how do I take this on-prem to the cloud? And I love some of the um, you know, uh, conversations where people go, well, it's pretty easy. Just send your service to a data center somewhere and you're done. And you're like, no, not how that works. Yeah. Like that's nice if that was the case, um, but this isn't pizza. Um, well, you can't just good... order it in. That actually brings up a good question. So, um... In your case, and again, if you can share without naming names, has COVID increased your adoption of a cloud-based strategy versus what you had historically as a as a as a more was on prem and it's a completely so so we were we were about twenty percent on prem, eighty percent cloud. Okay, but we had to switch. We had to take the other twenty percent to the cloud. And that involved, and we had the other 20%. I think a lot of people know that you leave some stuff on-prem because it's strategic. It's kind mm -hmm. of, you know, your uh, either Achilles heels. It's stuff where you want to have a little bit more oversight or more physical control. Um, and, and we had to change that. And we had to kind of change our thought process around it. And it required a lot of thinking and a lot of um, looking at it from a perspective of how do we move this stuff to the cloud in a in a in an environment where we feel comfortable from not just security but also operational integrity that this is still going to operate at the uh, the same way we've built it you know on prem mm -hmm. and and those conversations you know in our organization I'd, I'd like to you know we we have all the stakeholders at every single one of those conversations from you know engineering and architecture and security and it's a it's a very uh, thorough process of doing something like this where, you know, you, you can't just say, all right, move that to the cloud. Let's go. It's, well, how do we move it to the cloud? What are the stages? What needs to go? What isn't going to be there because we're transitioning to the cloud from a DevOps perspective and an AppSec perspective? Um, there's, there's things that, you know, you're using in the cloud and tools and and, and tools and, and, and cloud items, uh, cloud services that you're using that don't exist in on-prem solutions. They just don't, they're, they're non-existent. But then you gotta pick the cloud provider you wanna work with mm -hmm. and you gotta understand their vulnerabilities. I think most people, I think one of the challenges that most people have a hard time really wrapping their heads around from uh, an organizational perspective, if we look at this from a pure business standpoint mm -hmm. is, how do you enhance security in the cloud, which is in a lot of cases, um, you know, an issue of maturity and knowledge. 
And with cloud well, being so new, it's 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 a problem. Well, that's actually was going to be my my last yeah. follow on question, and that was how much uh, when you were getting together as executive teams, just did risk come up? You know, the 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 likelihood of risk if you move versus its magnitude if you didn't. So there there wasn't an issue of we, we view risk as being a part of doing business. Right. And so we have a risk appetite, but for us strategically, it's business continuity. So we know that if we can't get to our servers ever again, because of whatever reason, right? right. This time it was COVID tomorrow. It could be a snowstorm, okay. right? The next day it could be tornadoes. It can be a hurricanes. It can be five terrorist attacks. It can be a military coup. You name it. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, re or you could just get booted off of Amazon. That too. <laughs> Not saying that that could happen. I mean, but in the realm of a risk right. register, that I mean, the, 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 I'll <laughs> I'll tell you that COVID changed a lot of our thinking with cloud providers, and then mm -hmm. the aftermath of January sixth did as well. Yeah. Okay. So I I would hope so. Right? I was going to ask you so, about that. So that did as well. But from our end, Kevin, to kind of look at it from a risk perspective, we looked at it from a business operation, and then we said, what's the risk? We, we know business has to run a specific way. Mm -hmm. Now, in order to do business this way, this is what we're going to have to do. Now, is that risk any different than the existing risk that's in place with the way we operate today? There's no zero risk, you know, like I know people no, talk zero trust, but there's no such thing as zero yeah, risk. Zero Although risk. I want to write a book. I want to write a book that says zero risk. And then the whole book would be blank pages not. and see, there's no such thing not. as zero risk. There's no not. such thing as zero trust. <laughs> Yeah. Signed. <laughs> Bye. Um, but, but but although uh, the the zero trust crowd category is doing awesome, their stocks are doing amazingly well, well in this environment. But I'm yeah, well, we we, there, we, so we, we continue can get your to that debate too if you'd like. <laughs> I, you know, we looked at it from an operational perspective, and so if the risk outweighed business operations in a in a in a place where it was significant for a long period of time where the risk became unacceptable, we had to find other ways to, you know, get more creative in how we're going to make that transition. There's no, there was no such option option for us as we're not going to do it. I think the option was how do we do it in a, in a, in a, in a way where business continuity is maintained and revenue is still streamlined. How do we not increase our overhead costs by doing this? Meaning this investment's got to be able to repay itself. And then how do we integrate all the different aspects of the business and primarily security into this so that we as a business can continue to operate? Because, you know, unfortunately, customers who pay you for something aren't going to sit around and be like, hey, sure, take three months. It's okay. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's just not a reality. You know, one of the things um, at Dark Rhino, a lot of our customers are – it's small, medium businesses, the sub 2000 employee market space, if you will, James. And what we encounter quite a bit in that segment is that companies struggle with the definition of risk. You know, they just understanding it um, as a prime example, when you ask folks, what is what do you need to guard the most? What what do you want to protect the most? a lot of times they don't have a very concise answer. So do you have any suggestions for those folks? 
Is there a framework, a methodology, an approach, something that you would suggest that they adopt that would further their maturity in that arena? So I think risk is 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 a very interesting concept um, for small businesses and I think mid-sized companies because you know when you operate in an environment like today where everything is SaaS, right? And a lot of these businesses operate on a multi-SaaS. You know, that's why Okta is just Okta. Okta wouldn't be around if it wasn't for all the SaaS products that are out there that different, you know, departments within a business use all these different SaaS-based solutions, right? And you don't want to have someone have, you know, 17 different logins and passwords. That's just unhygienic. In comes Okta, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, when you talk about risk, it's hard for those companies to identify that as a risk because as far as they they're concerned you know we're we're diversified right and you put yourself in the head of a small business owner and i have a lot of friends that own small businesses um that are you know whether it be marketing firms or accountants or lawyers and so whenever they talk to me about security they go who's gonna want to hack me man i'm on office 365 and i use books and that's you know and i and i use word and I use the courthouse system, you know, and yeah. it's the courthouse. No one is James, but you get the same that you get that same opinion, even if the company has 500 or 600. Well, yeah. Uh, and, and, and some of my friends do have those kinds of businesses and I look at them and I go, I get it. I understand that. But I think the one thing you have to pay attention to is it's not really you. They want it's your customers that they want. Mm-hmm. So if you value and you want to, keep your customers going what's the risk if you were shut down for four days to your customers and to your business right now i hate to use fud so we go about this and i go what's your hour worth Mm thousand dollars okay wonderful so you charge a thousand dollars an hour you're a really high priced very good lawyers i have plenty of lawyer friends so you know these guys they all of a sudden tripled their rates who know yeah it's crazy like yeah yeah uh so either way i go so a thousand dollars an hour so you work how many hours a day let's say you work 10 hours a day so you make 10 grand a day fairly fairly acceptable okay it's a lot of money it's a lot of money you have paralegals you charge for them 150 200 an hour so what does your business stand to make every day now if your business shut down for a full day because of a cyber incident how far back does that set you? Now, if you made this investment in security, that would just be basic blocking and tackling. We take the CIS top 20. Let's look at the top seven or eight of them. And let's just put those controls in place. Well, you know what, James? Yeah. You may be the exception, but when you know it said Kevin at McKinsey.com, people returned my phone call. Um, when it says Kevin or Minoj at Dark Rhino Security, it was like, who? And so I guess my question is to you, at, at a person at your level, as a global CIO level, you know, we have found that and this is a broad brush statement that it's very hard not only to get to you, but when you get to, to an individual like yourself, is to get you to think outside of your own paradigm. So my question to you is, how do 
CIOs and CISOs in your role of a global organization, how do you look for companies that are innovative, creative, or doing things that are outside the box uh, that actually can make a difference during these difficult times that we're facing right now? So are you talking from a technology perspective or a knowledge perspective? Knowledge. Let's start with knowledge. So from knowledge, it's a little bit more challenging. So we, from a global perspective, have a list of authorized vendors that can come in from a consulting perspective. And like you said, if it was a McKinsey or a PwC or any of those big names, they're on the list. Um, When you talk about the smaller organizations, it's a bit more of a challenge. The way we leverage some of that power, though, is if we find a small company that we like to do business with, we'll go to the big name and say, we don't want to work with any of your people. We want to work with these people. So you go do what you got to do with them Mm -hmm. and engage them to engage us. Okay. And, And unfortunately, you know, it's, it's, it's the politics of working in big corporations, right? When I hire a company that's unknown, the risk of a project failure and the risk on my reputation and the internal politics is greater. And it's unfortunate. I wish that wasn't the case, Yeah. but it's the absolute truth. And so you have, you know, you kind of have to go about it politically and it's, it's a way of how, you know, some people, you know, lawyers do this all the time and I hate to go back into lawyers, but I have lawyer friends that that's all they do. Like, you know, they're very, very smart. Um, but let's say they're, they're not in the bar in a specific state, but they're really smart. They understand the law. So, you know, and someone says, I want to hire you to represent me in this case. He goes, well, I can't argue in front of the judge, but go engage a lawyer in your state. That's, you know, in the bar, mm-hmm. have him engage me. Right. And then I can consult on the case. But typically, do you find that the PwCs and Deloitte's and the Accentures and they just don't want to they don't want to partner with smaller firms because they don't want to give up? Well, that then revenue. that then we don't give them the revenue. Then that budget isn't going to them, right? At that point, we're like they're like well, we can do it. We we know how to do this. And I'm like, you're a 23 year old or 24 year old, newly out of college. Uh, $60,000 a year Excel carrying person does not understand how to solve this. This requires seasoned people, not people that are, you know, the one thing about big firms that a lot of companies have started to understand, including our own, is they bring the most impressive name to the meetings to get the contract. And then you never see that person again. Correct. Never, ever. Like you see them only when you, you see them only when you're ready to cancel the contract. Or, or when the, you need to spend Most it. people are really expensive, right. James, as you know. <laughs> and getting them tied up on one project is very expensive. But at the so, same time, let me ask at you. the same time, if you're going to bring someone in a big name like that, right, have the downstream support of smart people around that person. Most of the right. time, you're they right. don't do that. And we hold them accountable. So, you know, on my end, I don't work with big consulting firms with, you know, talent unless I see the full CV of every talent, I don't care who you are. Well, you're an exception. Yeah, you really are. Truly you are. You're an exception. I'm a customer. I'm paying money. I'm not going to pay you any money for people that I can go and get through a recruiting firm um, for half the price. I'm just not going to do it because you're a big name firm. I want people who are going to really contribute to our team. And so if, if you don't have them, we're not interested. Let, let's switch direction just for a second here. 
Um, and and let me ask you this: Do you think that now companies understand much better that cybersecurity is a business problem and not necessarily an IT problem? It took it, it took COVID to do that, but look, I, I'm spoiled. I work in an organization where um, security has always been top of mind, right? So be well, then you're an exception. So, you know, I keep hearing that on the show, but I'm not. I think there's a lot of, or I think there's a lot of um, Fortune 500 companies that have been victims of uh, breaches where security for a long time has been part of business, and because of what they went through, because of the incidents they went through, and the you know the PTSD they have thereafter, it carries among the boards, and most boards are you know a board member that serves in one company probably serves in four or five others. And that, that pain goes across and it spreads. And so you tend to see that on bigger companies, cyber's been that way. I think in the midsize market, what cyber used to be an IT problem has now become a business problem. I think you see that now more with midsize companies. So not the Fortune 500s, but the midsize companies, the third-party supply chain companies have become more... Um, aware that cyber needs to be a business part. And I think some of them, by hiring smart CISOs, by the way, understand right. also how to monetize it. Because now the the path of monetizing cyber within your infrastructure is out there. So monetize it. Uh, you know what? You're the first sizzle. So I, I'm actually glad you brought this up because I bring this up with clients all the time. Uh, but you're the first sizzle we've had on the show that's actually brought mm -hmm. that up, that there is a pathway to monetize cyber, and you're absolutely spot on with that. Yeah, if, if you're not monetizing, if you're as a CISO are not selling cyber to your sales team to sell to their customers, I don't want to say you're failing at your job, but you're missing an opportunity to enhance your budget increase your visibility across the organization and increase your stature among the C-suite. So, mm -hmm. you know, a very, a very uh, funny thing I saw today from, um, um, uh, so I forgot who it was. I think it was uh, the guy over at Tax Cyber. I forgot his name. Uh, the former CISO over at AT&T. Um, but um, um, he had something where it was the CISO sitting at the kids table and it was the CEO coming and saying, hey, time for you to get out the kids table. Come join the big boy table. Yeah. Right. You don't have to wait for the CEO to invite you to that table. You can earn your spot at that table by simply understanding how to monetize cyber within the sales and marketing team. So like I, when we do internal phishing tests, I do them with our marketing team. Mm -hmm. I yeah. do actual phishing tests with our marketing team. They design the campaigns, they build the email, they give me the HTML, they do all of it from a marketing perspective. So it looks as close as possible to something that's really good. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Uh, Go ahead, Manoj. No, I was going to say that that's fantastic. That's a great idea, by the way. It really is. Use your own marketing team to design the darn thing. And hopefully they're not the ones that are know clicking your company it. better. <laughs> yeah. And who's going to know the personalities of the people that are likely to click it. I mean, that's a real mm -hmm. test. It is. Because when I do the test or when you do the test, we do it as cyber guys. Right. 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 You look at the header and everything else. <laughs> right. They do it from a perspective to where they understand the psychology of the user. And the psychology mm -hmm. of the user 
is everything in an awareness test. And by the way, I don't measure my awareness test by, by people who click on it. I don't give a shit if you click, right? You're supposed okay. to click, but I, I care. My percentage is how many people who clicked reported it. That's my success rate. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And so how do you, re how do you educate uh, the people that click, but don't report? So we, I, I don't, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of no before. All right. And, and I'll just say that outright. I really love what, what no before does, but, and we use them a lot and we've customized the trainings. So we don't do the 10 minute standard training. You clicked, you failed, go do a 10 minute training and complete it. We, we break down data. So we look at who clicked and what they click on and what was the campaign that we did. Right. And we don't do campaign for the entire company. Our campaigns are based on departments. They're based on roles. They're based on um, access to, you know, if I get your credentials and you're a system admin, we're probably going to have a harsher conversation than if you're a call center employee with very limited access to data. It's just mm -hmm. as bad, but it's not as bad as a system admin. So, so, so there's that aspect of it. So we, we look at kind of, an, we look at that data, we look at those numbers, we break it down, and then we go in and we customize the training for the people who didn't report it. So we go, what is it about this email that you clicked on it? You did what you did and didn't make you seem fishy. Mm -hmm. Like didn't make it seem like it was an issue. And that we don't want to shame them. So I don't believe in the shaming aspect of it. I've been in a lot of conversation with my peers where we're in roundtables and they go, if you fail it third time, we could fire you. And I'm like, well, that's counterproductive. Yeah. That's yeah. very counterproductive. Right. I don't want anyone to lose their job because they clicked, they failed a phishing test. Like, I don't want them, even if they do it 10 times, I don't want them to fail. Like, I don't want them mm -hmm. fired. Right. I realize they're a risk, but then we, we, we mitigate that risk. Maybe they don't get emails with links anymore. I don't know. Maybe they don't get attachments anymore. Maybe we'll deploy a, a, a tool that takes every attachment they get, turns it into a JPEG. That's it. Yeah. You get a JPEG. <laughs> no, no danger there. No danger, you know, no danger in you taking a document and us making it a JPEG and then, you know, go into Word and do it yeah. that way. Or no one is allowed to send you documents. You got, it's only got to be done through our OneDrive or you know, yeah. or, 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 or teams or whatever it is, right? Like mm -hmm. there are creative solutions to dealing with the human aspect of it, but it just, it takes a little bit of spending time with those people and getting outside of our own echo chamber of security. Makes sense. That makes sense. So do you think it would be better if the CISO was moved out from under the CIO's role and had their own function, independent of IT. So I'm a fan of the office of the CISO. It's in fact, part of my book. I advocate, I have three chapters in my book that advocate for the office of the CISO. And what I advocate for is that the office of the CISO today has to cover any, beyond IT. You have legal and compliance, mm -hmm. right? Yes. That have to fall under the office of the CISO. Um, I remember about a half a year ago, I was offered a position somewhere else and, and I won't say, and uh, they show me the organizational chart and they go 60% of the time you go to this guy and 40% of the time you report to this guy. And I was like, and a hundred percent of the time I go crazy. Um, right. So no, thank yeah. you. 
right? That's mm-hmm. like not a very healthy structure for your, your CISO. And that's maybe why you're having a hard time filling this role, right? A CISO should be an independent office, no different than how the COO is or the CEO is. I had a post on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, whereas where um, I think over 100,000 people saw it, but it was a post where I said, um, the, the role of the CISO is the, the, most, the most diverse role beyond the role of a CEO in a company. Because you have to know so much about every single aspect of the business in order to really understand how to do security, right? It's not just about securing the endpoint or the firewall or the network. You have to understand every function of the business. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that many of your peers have that, that knowledge? It's getting they, there. His, it's getting there? It's getting, it's getting better? I, it's getting better. Um, we as a community are doing better. There's a lot of great stuff out there. Um, CISOs are more, um, are paying more attention to that. Most CISOs used to go and get more certs. Now they're getting business MBAs. That's mm-hmm. a thing. So that's really important because they're going out and they're getting their higher education, not in cyber and not in compliance and not in legal. They're getting now their MBAs in business. So now they're starting to understand the role of business. I mean, in in my book, I won't say how long, but I predict that we'll see CISOs become the ideal candidates for CEOs within a period of time. Hmm. Because boards are going to start to realize that you know, the role of a CEO usually used to come CFO or COO, you know, that's kind of your path is you're either in finance or operations and you become a CEO, unless you're a Steve Jobs or a Tim Cook or, you know, a Mm -hmm. founder of a big company. But if you look at the legacy organizations like the AT&Ts or the Verizons or even the Comcast, if you look at their CEO's backgrounds, those were all money guys. They're all Wall Street balance sheet guys. Mm -hmm. They're not really... um, you know, anything else. And you're going to see, I mean, when big companies like Verizon and AT&T and Comcast opened their own cybersecurity divisions to become vendors, understand that CISOs are the next CEOs in those organizations. So you talk, let's see, uh, the the future will tell that that's a interesting point of view. I I have, uh, I can see where you're coming from. Let's see if that changes. That would be that would be interesting. That's a interesting. It's already happened. It just happened. Where? With Intel with acquired VMware, and they took the CEO of VMware and made him the CEO of Intel. And the CEO of VMware is a security background, IT background kind of guy. He's not a business guy. Hmm. That's interesting. He learned business. Yeah. And now he's the CEO he of did. Intel. He eventually became. <laughs> So James, go ahead. So, Minos, go ahead. No, I was gonna. I'm just watching the yeah. clock here because we have them for an yeah. hour. Not we have for nine <laughs> more minutes. We're always respectful of people's <laughs> people's times. That's I, I hate uh, destroying people's times uh, going over. But I do want to talk about China. Let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. yeah I, I I really do want to get to that. Um, the Chinese cybersecurity threat. And, and maybe it's I'm picking on China, but I would say it is there's a lot of countries that uh, have uh, no extradite agreements with the United States and uh, people who are hungry, uh, to say the least. And cyber is a great way to make a good living. Yeah. Actually, you make a pretty good living. 
doing it. So, but let, let's go back to China. What do you think uh, um, on the Chinese threat to the United States at a cybersecurity level? Is, is that one of the bigger threats as a, from a national security perspective? China is our biggest national security threat, period, on all levels, economical, military, especially cyber. And economical and military, and they use cyber to gain an edge in both fields. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. I agree. So I, th I think there's a lot we can agree with. And, and so here, here's what I'll tell you what I see about China. Um, one, it's, we have to, you know, I, I said, I'll, I'll explain this kind of, let me go back. Let me explain this in a different way. The reason China's our biggest adversary and the reason some of our adversaries that you mentioned other countries, not just to pick on China, but if you look at Russia or Iran or North Korea, the reason they yeah. have a lot of success in cyber, uh, in their cyber espionage and cyber attacks and, um, and so forth is because they have identical leadership for 20 some odd years. This morning I was doing a show, we're talking about it on, on LinkedIn, and I said Putin's been around since 1999. It's now 2021. It's 22 years. I don't have socks that are 22 years old. Yeah. <laughs> they have the same guy in power for 22 years. Right? You don't have a car. You haven't, you, you've switched seven cars by then. Mm -hmm. Some people switched seven cars in that time period. This guy's been around for that long. In China, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, has been running the country for over, what is it, 60 years now? Same leadership. Well over. Yeah. Yeah. Same leadership, same direction. The names at the head may change, but the general purpose, direction, and goals are all the same. And so it's easy They're for them to be very successful in cyber because they have one leadership. It's steady leadership. In the Western nations, and specifically I'm going to go to the U.S., Cybersecurity has become a bipartisan political issue, and it shouldn't be. It should be a universal national issue that shouldn't be partisan. It should be bipartisan. We should all agree that cybersecurity is really important, that we should invest a ton of money on it, that we should empower DOD, DHS, um, DOE, Department of Energy. That's very, very important. Mm -hmm. um, because people always talk DOD, DHS, NSA, CIA, all that. But I'm like, right. Department of Energy, Department of Energy, right. Department of Energy. Gee. Don't forget yeah. those guys. You, you need them. Treasury, DOJ. And you need to empower them all. with a, and, and the government needs to find a way to do this where they are no longer viewed as political players, but rather partners to our joint mission of cybersecurity. And there needs to be some bills and some policy that's put in place to defend organizations from nation state cyber attacks. Yeah. Meaning if you're, you know, people are talking about a class action against solar winds, right? And we saw that with Equifax. Yeah, the, mm -hmm. Yes. Here's my challenge with that. Did, did anyone, you know, and I don't mean to compare the two, so I won't do this. I was going to go in a direction, but now, solar winds. What I don't. There's no technology that no, there wasn't. That. that was no, there wasn't. They're a victim of a nation state crime. So if we view it as a terror attack, would you sue the victim? Would you sue Pizza Hut if someone blew up in a Pizza Hut? 
absolutely not. No, but I'm sure that the law permits you to do the so. The law does permit you to do so, but that's a failure of the law. Mm-hmm. Right now, you can sue them, and chances are that the lawsuit's going to get dismissed, but not at the cost of the business. Right? Would agree. The fact that Equifax had a class action lawsuit and settled it was a very dangerous precedent. Extremely dangerous. It's now set the place where anyone can class action lawsuit any company on a nation state attack and so if we classify cyber attacks as nation state cyber attacks that can be verified and confirmed by let's say CISA as an independent body right right? Right. or the FBI and we go we deem this cyber attack to be nation state and there's a law that says if it's a nation state attack there's no repercussions there's no legal repercussions that the victims of the victim can take against the, that company. I would right? agree. That then you would have a type of business environment where those corporations would now trust the government and do that. I'll give you a prime example in Equifax. I have friends here in Atlanta who were the FBI in the FBI field office who were okay who went to Equifax to you know help, and they couldn't speak to anyone from Equifax. They spoke to King and Spalding. That's a law firm. They were speaking to lawyers. They were asking questions and they were getting answers from lawyers. Yeah, protecting their assets. I think that if such a policy is to go out, there needs to be a joint policy there that needs to go at the consumer level. Like right now, if you if your identity was part of the Equifax, you're kind of screwed, man. I mean, we've all been screwed. And your people, yeah, yeah and and people's. The one thing I we work on in a lot of things are antiquated at this point in time. They just haven't kept up with the technology, like our social security numbers. Uh, everybody wants that. Everybody, there's so many places that it, they should not be using those, but they do as a central identifier. If if that is compromised, there should be some protection then for you as a citizen. To make sure that that can't be reused again and and you know one thing doesn't exist it's one thing i said after equifax is go to the dmv and change your driver's license number and change the issue date of your driver's license so if some if your identity was stolen and the id that was used it, was pre-equifax you can at least you have a chance of erasing that debt that fraud that happened under your name from your credit report so it doesn't impact you Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Well, in a lot of states. So in Pennsylvania, you get one shot at changing your driver's license. And then after that, they're going to be like, if you're consistently changing your driver's license, that's not going to fly. No. Did Do you have a police report? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I would go to, I, then I would uh, go I, file a police report every time. My identity was stolen. Here's the data breach notification. According to them, at this date, my identity was stolen. They had this driver's license number which creates a severe threat to my identity. I'd go file a police report today. You can do that online in most police stations, by mm-hmm. the way, because it's a it's a victimless crime where they come to your house, they give you a police report, they give you a number, and then you go to the DMV and you give them the police report number. I would do it, absolutely. You're the government. I'm not working for you. You work for me. And it's your job to protect my identity. We as people have forgotten that we the people have rights. 
and mm-hmm. the government and, needs and that to, is to the give point us a, the government needs to protect us as citizens not their lazy back ends in get, yeah. doing a job <laughs> and and that my friend is exactly the point i think the fe- it, those if a policies policies that are going to be pushed out in this arena can't be done just to cover the equifaxes of the world they must also cover the end citizenry that's impacted by it in some way shape Mm -hmm. or form it can't be that individual consumers left to fend for themselves because equifax see i don't have a choice who who uses i have no choice with experian or equifax when i go apply for a loan i'm stuck with it and that's to a degree that's bs i have no way to and i have no control over that but if they lose my data, then they're like, well, dude, you're on your own. And and that doesn't work. Well, James, I want to, as Manoj said, we, uh, this, this hour passed very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's way it was, too quick. We, I mean, this is a very really good discussion. Getting into I, the meat of to, everything. We, um, we can go five yeah. more minutes. We, I, okay. I just pushed my, my, my next call by five. So we, okay. we've got we, five we, more. Okay. okay. So I have a question. So, um, it goes so managed detection and response. Um, you know, when you look at firms like CrowdStrike or Carbon Black, are, are are those guys doing it right, or are there other firms out there doing it differently? Or how does a big firm like you, if a, if an if a an event turns into an incident, um, how how does that? work i mean do you what what is what does a big firm like you guys do is or or should that change the way that people are looking at mdr so so i'll kind of go about this a little differently i think that no matter what vendor you use it's about the implementation and integration of their technology in at any given moment that that does this so you know I was doing a LinkedIn live a few weeks ago and someone at someone, you know, sorry, I was on a call with another CISO and yeah. they're, they're more hands-on, right? They're, they have a smaller team than I do. And so they're asking me, we're looking at SIM solutions for our SOC. What SIM do you use in your SOC? And I looked at them and I was just like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You raise your eyebrows, Manoj. Yeah. That's what, that's what some people looked at me like, how do you not know? And I was like, I don't have time to get into that. I yeah. don't. I don't think people understand how difficult and time consuming the role of a CISO is beyond tools. And I think yeah. that's one thing like I always tell vendors, they go, James, it takes you three months to answer my email. I go, because your bottom of, like the last thing I'm thinking about right now is tools. Right. And, that's, I have, and we all actually, we wrote ahead. a paper years ago, uh, rules before tools. You know, and that was that was done 15 years ago that, uh, you know, we wanted to make sure that we put policy and process in place before we sell or, you know, try to inundate people with with products. It just doesn't work. So but that was an interesting comment. It was a very interesting comment. Thank you. Well, I mean, I'm all for optimizing tools. Right. So before we buy any tool. RVPs get together and they go, this is the problem we're trying to solve. Now we look at our tool checklist of all the tools we have. So there's one other thing I want to ask, and I apologize. And I'm, that's why Manoj never lets me on these things. You got 30 seconds, You Kevin, made an interesting comment. I want to give James a chance to plug himself, uh, too. You said oh, okay. vendors <laughs> and not partners. That was an 
I'm sure that wasn't a deliberate choice, or that wasn't a, you chose that word deliberately. Why not partners? Because I have only very few partners and a lot of vendors. Okay. So, so, so I'd love to have more partners, Yeah. but I have more vendors than I do partners. And I treat my vendors like vendors and I treat my partners exactly like, like partners. partners. Yeah. So when yeah. you talked about a situation where what happens if something goes on, the first phone call goes to my partners. Yeah. Not yep, to the vendors. Excellent. So it does exist in large corporations, partnerships versus vendors. I don't want a vendor. Good. I need a partner in security. Security is about partnerships. It's not about vendors. Good. You know, I'm not Salesforce. Yeah. <laughs> right? All right. James, Minoj. So, James, we're coming up on the hour. Are you going to be doing any events, shows, books, so, anything so, coming out that you want us to put in the show so, notes? So I, I have I have several podcasts that people can check out, including my CISO Talk podcast, where I speak to other CISOs. It's no sales, kind of, you know, um, a, a conversation around leadership and cyber and um, stuff that we like to do on our off time, like books we read and movies we watch and music we listen to. It's a, it's a fun podcast called CISO Talk. Uh, I am doing a bunch of events, man, way too many to list, but I am on LinkedIn every day at 9am live. I do a practitioner cool. brief okay. every day for 10 minutes at 9am um, on my on my uh, uh, on my page where I talk about um, the stories in the news, but from a risk impact and mitigation perspective. Hmm. So beyond the headline, beyond here's a vulnerability. Great. I understand there's this vulnerability, but What's the risk of it? What's the what's the uh, impact? Impact. And what's going to be the mitigation? And I do that Monday like through that. Thursdays at nine a.m. I like that. Very like good. That. We'll put the link Absolutely, in, the show, we in the show notes. Brilliant. Thank you thank so you. very much. Thank you for, for having me. It was on. an honor. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much. This was wonderful, James. Really appreciate it. Hope you come Absolutely. back. Absolutely. We'll, we'll have another bourbon. Yes, we will. Maybe in person next time, though. That would love that. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Great. Thank Brilliant. you. Hey, Cheers, take guys. Take care, James. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Hey, cheers, Bye -bye. guys.